Let's all stand together as we turn to Matthew chapter 13, uh, beginning a new series today I call The Kingdom in Stories. The Kingdom in Stories, uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 3. Uh, he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places, where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up, because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty and some 30. May God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. Jesus was a king like no other king. And because he was a king like no other king, of course, he had a kingdom like no other kingdom. In our passage over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at these stories, famous stories that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13. Most are also recorded in Mark's gospel and Luke's and various uh, maybe slight details uh, in the story uh, might be a little different. But uh, the overall message does not change as it is recorded for us. And in all of these, he had a purpose. He was telling us something about the kingdom. He would say again, the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like this. It's like this. In various aspects then of his kingdom rule in the world are put on display. Now, Jesus was at the ripe old age of 12 when he would say to his parents, I must be about my father's business. Now, having just gone through his bar mitzvah, having just uh, passed that uh, circle, we might expect that from a Jewish boy. And generally, he might be saying, well, it's time for me to take over my part of the family business. To be trained as his father, Joseph, was a carpenter. He would have been a carpenter. And there's every indication that Jesus did that. But, of course, in his life, it had a much, much greater meaning. And it has a much greater meaning for us today. Because the simplest way that all of us can relate to the kingdom is to understand that we have bowed the knee to heaven's king. If you haven't bowed the knee to heaven's king, you're not saved. But if you're saved, then you have bowed the knee to heaven's king. And we need to know about his kingdom, what it's like. What does our king expect of us? And so in considering these great old stories over the next few weeks, we're going to be uh, hopefully learning things that would help us know in a better way, a fuller way, how we are to relate to our king and his kingdom. When we think of kings and kingdoms, we almost instinctively think of swords. Uh, the power and authority of the king is difficult, in fact, for us to even comprehend without thinking of the sword. And rightly so, and we even find that in Scripture, Romans chapter 13 and verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For he that is the authority is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. And so you see, Paul used the sword as a symbol of governmental authority. 
In his day, that governmental authority was Caesar. Caesar was the king. And certainly he knew how to wield the sword. Well, Jesus' kingdom has a sword as well. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 gives us more information about that. He said, The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. A two-edged sword was considered to be a dangerous, very dangerous weapon because it would cut in any direction. It cuts to the right. It would cut just as well back to the left. It would cut up. It would cut down. It would cut as you move forward. But if your enemy overpowered you, of course, it would cut you as well. It was a dangerous, dangerous weapon. And the Bible then tells us that the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. But notice, it's called the sword of the Spirit. You see, when Jesus begins to talk to us about a kingdom, He did not put a sword in our hands. He put seed in our hands. Completely different picture of any kingdom that anybody had ever known of up to that time. A kingdom whose power is not in swords, but in seed. Hmm. A sower went forth to sow. Now the details of the parable and the ingredients of it are very easy for us to express. It's not really hard for us to see. Uh, first of all, of course, we have to notice the seed. Uh, verse 3, he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, he, what did he sow? He sowed seed. Luke's account gives us a very plain Uh, a statement about what this is. Uh, Verse 11 of Luke chapter 8, the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. (laughs) That's as simple as it gets. The seed is the word of God. You see it again in verse 19 in Matthew chapter 13, when anyone hears what? The word of the kingdom. And so Jesus calls it the word of the kingdom. He calls it the word of God. It is the message of the gospel. In Jesus' kingdom economy then, there is the word of God. And the Word of God is pictured then as being like a seed. A seed that is being sowed. And so the Word of God, though it could be compared to a sword, and in fact is a sword, and it is used by the mighty Spirit of God to cut deeply and pierce our hardened hearts, the Word of God is also a seed. And it is in that capacity that He puts it in our hands to be sown into the world. Which brings us, of course, to the sower. Uh, As he sowed, verse 4, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, no identification of the sower is given in this parable at all. We can see him, we know what he was. This is an ancient sower walking out among the fields. He would have a leather bag full of seed. It would be thrown over his shoulder, but open at the top so he could reach in, get a handful, and broadcast it, sow it, sow the seed. That's what it was. Who was it? 
It was a sower. Now in the next parable in Matthew chapter 13, which we'll see next week, in verse 37, uh, he identifies the sower as himself. He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. But we don't just take that from one parable to another and conclude, well, since the sower was Jesus in the parable of the tares among the wheat, we have to conclude that the sower then was Jesus in the first parable about the soils and the various kinds of soils. We don't naturally make that kind of a jump. But it's not too hard for us to think of it in that way. Jesus was certainly sowing the seed of the gospel. He was doing that as he began to preach and go about from village to village and town to town, in synagogues, everywhere, in the temple, wherever he went. He was constantly sharing the message, spreading the message of the word of God. He was certainly the sower, but he wasn't alone. Uh, All of these people, he was training. He was sending them out to sow the seed and Throughout all of these centuries, jump down all the way to Cabot, Arkansas, 2018. He intends for you and I to be in the seed sowing business as well. We're still sowing that same seed. Seed of the word of God. The seed of the gospel. We are faithfully spreading the good news. So if there's the seed and the sower, it shouldn't surprise you that the next thing that we see, the ingredients of the parable, is the soil itself. He did not identify the sower. He would later identify the seed as being the word of God. That's all he says. Same sower, same seed. The difference in this passage is the soil. As he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. Some fell on stony places. Some fell among thorns. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The wayside was the hard-packed walking paths that went between the fields, wherever they were. Uh, This ground was not cultivated. It was a walking path. It was a place where people traveled uh, as they went about through the fields. And that uh, dry and hard ground, you could imagine, since it was not cultivated and what was not disturbed, it was packed very hard. It was completely inhospitable to the seed. Now the sower, as he was sowing the seed, would not intentionally say, now I've got to sow that wayside too. Uh, He wouldn't walk over there and just set out, well, I'm going to really sow this part really good. No, he he wouldn't do that. But as he's sowing, some would fall there. And Jesus would tell us very quickly what would happen. The birds of the air would see it and they would immediately come and snatch it away. Because the ground was hard. It was completely inhospitable to the seed. In that rocky soil, these people would commonly dig up rocks and pile them around the boundary of their field. Some of the ground then was stony. 
And again, the sower would not deliberately target that. You would not go to the stone pile that ringed that field or the stony ground or, or the outcropping of rock maybe that was in one corner that you knew maybe the ground was only a half inch deep and say, well, I really need to seed this really well. No, he would not do that. But while he was sowing, some of the seed would fall on the stony ground. And because of the nature of that ground, it was dark, the seeds would fall down into the crevices and some of it would actually sprout. But it would not produce a crop. I was visiting with a farmer friend of mine in Hazen some years ago. I've never forgotten what it was because I noticed that there by the water spout in his, by, by his shop, it was paved all around it, asphalt all around it. But there was a cucklebur plant growing in a crack. And he saw me looking at that, and he said, don't you mess with my cucklebur. He said, I'm conducting an experiment. I want to see if it makes a crop. It did. It did. Two cuckleburs. It did. It doubled itself. So I could say, unless you're a cucklebur, <laughs> though, most of the things that fall among the thorns and the, or, in the, or in the, among the rocks, rather, are not going to produce. And that's exactly what Jesus described. It would sprout up, make a plant, but there was not enough depth of soil there to sustain it, and so it would wither away. Some, again, uh, very, no doubt very close to where the rocks were. There would be places where they could not get the team in close enough, the animals close enough uh, to be able to cultivate the soil because of the rocks. And it would grow up then in weeds and thorns. You, you can picture this in your mind and see it very plainly. Again, the sower would not target such a place. But some of the seed, while he's sowing, would no doubt fall in that weedy, thorny place it might sprout but the thorns the weeds would choke it out and it would not produce we don't need to overanalyze all this today because really the meaning of the story is straightforward especially since Jesus has taught it to us and we're pretty familiar with it you see, seed is planted in row crop farming or uh, even in, in this type of farming. Uh, any kind of grain farming that is done is produced for only one reason, and that is to produce a crop. Jesus was not describing people who were uh, making a, a, a lettuce farm. Uh, so that your, your goal then was just to produce a plant and eat the plant. But in this case, you're, you're planting seed and, and you're doing it in order to produce a crop. Anybody that ever plants seed like this does so to produce a crop. In fact, it's called bearing fruit in this story. The sowing of the seed then on the good ground, which was certainly what he was targeting, would produce a crop. And Jesus would identify it as being some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. And of course, only what produced a crop was considered effective. Some farmer might occasionally brag about how good his bean crop is looking. 
man, I've got beans this tall. But if he doesn't produce a crop of beans, he is not going to be satisfied that he made plants this tall. A corn farmer might look at it and say, man, I've got some of the tallest, prettiest corn stalks you've ever seen. But if they don't put ears of corn on and produce a crop, we call that a failure. It's a crop failure. It didn't, it didn't do what it was supposed to do. You're not out just to produce a plant. You're out to produce a crop. And if it fails to produce a crop, it has failed. It's a crop failure. But we've got good news today because in this story, though some of it failed, oh, some of it produced. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Now, what Jesus was picturing in his day was probably the sowing of wheat. It might have been barley, uh, maybe a few other crops that they grew in ancient Israel, but we know they grew a lot of wheat. I looked it up. The average amount of wheat today that is planted per acre is 1.5 bushels. That's about 90 pounds of seed per acre. Average yield in the U.S. for unirrigated soil is about 50 to 60 bushels per acre. You plant one and a half bushels, you get about 60 fold. That's average. Below average, a poor crop would be 30 fold, about 30 bushels. Some places in the United States actually can expect to produce about 100 bushels of wheat per acre. Plant one Get a hundred, that's a hundredfold. But right at this point, we need to understand that Jesus is not just giving us a lesson about farming. <laughs> he's giving us a lesson about the power of the gospel, about the kingdom. And he's saying that you're like that sower. You're going out and sowing seed, and that seed is the gospel. And it'll fall on good ground. And when it does, it will produce a crop. You'll produce a lot more than you ever sow. That is the power of the gospel. What is that message? Well, it's a message that Christ died for our sins and, and was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. It is the message that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever, whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is the good news set against the bad news, the backdrop, if you will, of our sins that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death which is not only physical death, but spiritual death and eternity of separation from God in a place survival calls hell. But the good news of the gospel is that God loved us. That God and Jesus Christ came down and provided a means of escape. We spread the good news. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. You've heard the old hymn writer said, the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now the seed might be sowed differently in different places and different parts of the field. Uh, but make no mistake, uh, the seed is always the gospel. The soil is identified as the hearts of people. 
seed is powerful. And if we'll faithfully sow that gospel seed, it will produce a crop. But not every gospel seed that is sown into the world is effective. Doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the seed. The seed is fine. The seed is powerful. The seed is the gospel. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the sower. What do you do? This isn't complicated. You don't have to have a degree in seminary to take seed out of a package and throw it out on the ground. That's not complicated. It's not that the sower did something wrong. It's not that the seed was wrong. But let's just face the facts. Jesus said it. A lot of times the seed goes out. But it doesn't produce. It's ineffective. It's not the gospel's fault. It's not the sower's fault. What is it? It's the soil. That's the only place there's any difference. The soil. And the soil is particularly identified as the hearts of men. Sometimes you see the gospel falls on hard hearts. Jesus had a lot of that going on in his life. Matthew chapter 13 verse 19, Jesus said, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. That is an incredible passage because it tells us that the gospel seed, the incredible truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ is being sown. But there's two terrible things that happen and he puts them both in one passage. One is that people's hearts are hardened to the gospel. And I want you to know that the hearts of people in America today are as hard as I've ever seen in my life and they're getting harder. They're getting harder. But that's not even all that's going on. Because the seed falls on hard hearts. And then the wicked one is right there to snatch it away. Birds, plural, not one. But the wicked one is constantly at work to snatch up that gospel seed. <laughs> he, I think he knows sometimes better than we do how powerful the seed is. If you leave it alone, it's liable to rain. It's out there where people walk all the time. Somebody might come along then and trample on it and push it down in the soil. First thing you know, that thing might be up and growing. He knows how powerful it is. And he comes up with a thousand different ways to get people to avoid the gospel. He don't want them to listen to it because the gospel's powerful. He doesn't want them to hear it. He doesn't want it to linger around in their minds because he knows how powerful it is. And he loves to get them thinking about some social agenda or or, or, or somebody's sexual preference or orientation or, or how God does this or what God did that or some truth here or some idea there. He loves to get their mind thinking about anything else because he knows how powerful the gospel is. So the gospel is preached. Sometimes it falls on hard hearts. Jesus would describe how that people would not 
understand the gospel. And that's hard for us. The gospel is so simple, we'd like to think that anybody can understand it. In fact, we say that a lot. And it is true in a way. As long as we understand that the only way anybody ever understands the gospel is under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Because without that, humanity is stunningly ignorant of the things of God. And they won't understand the message of the gospel. Jesus said that very plainly in John chapter 6 and verse 63 when he said, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits a little bit. No. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by the Father. Earlier in that same passage, he would say, No man would come unto me unless the Father should draw him. And you say, Well, how does he do that? John 16 and verse 8. I'm glad you asked me that question. When he has come, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness, of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. The good news is, is that the power of the gospel does go out. And it does go out along with the convicting work of the Holy Spirit of God. You may be sitting in this crowd today thinking, Man, you know, I don't know, I'm feeling something kind of strange. Now, that preacher must be pretty persuasive. Well, I could put all of my persuasive power in my thimble and pour it out on you. And it wouldn't do you a bit of good. Did you hear what I said? persuasiveness that you feel is the convicting power of the Holy Spirit of God. He's here. And He works while the gospel is proclaimed. The heart hardened by sin and by rejection. The wicked one constantly working to snatch it away. The gospel is powerful. The gospel is true. Sometimes we sow the gospel and it doesn't produce. Sometimes it's because of the hardness of the hearts of people and the work of the devil to snatch it away. There's seed then that falls on the thin soil. And Jesus tells us what that is in verse 20. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Jesus experienced this often in his ministry, most notably in John chapter 2. And there was a mighty crowd of people who saw the miracles and they said they believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. Now the word, I've showed you this before, but the word believed in verse 23 is the exact same word that's translated commit in verse 24. It's a play on words. They believed on Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe on them. They believed on him because they saw the miracles, but he knew, he knew that their belief was superficial. We know about the crowd that came to him when he fed the 5,000 and they were all hanging on every word and listened to him preach for hours and hours and hours. Fed the 5,000. But we also know about the same crowd showing up a day or two later wanting to get another meal and Jesus didn't feed them that time. 
We know about uh, how that giddy crowd, uh, when Jesus was coming into the streets of Jerusalem, shouting, they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed to he who comes in the name of the Lord. But only a few days later, it was crucify him. You and I have seen many people make professions of faith, and maybe even they joined the church, followed him in baptism, lived for a while for the Lord, but then they're gone. Persecution comes, difficulty comes. We need to just occasionally face the facts. Their salvation was not genuine. Many of you might remember old preacher uh, O.R. Baldwin. He spent most of his life pastoring up here in Rose City. O.R. Baldwin was one of my teachers in seminary. And he taught us, you know, he said when people come and they join the church and then after a while they drop out. He said, I'll go and visit them a couple of times. You know, we're missing you. I'll go talk to him again. He said, talk to him. You know, you need to be in church. But he said, after I've talked to him a couple of times about the church, he said, the next time I talk to him, I'm going to talk to him about the gospel. I've never forgotten that. You see, a lot of people turn away for a very good reason. It's exactly what Jesus described in this story. They fell on the stony ground. There was no depth, no root. They received it for a while, but remember, Jesus isn't in the plant-producing business. He's in the crop-producing business. There's the weedy, the thorny ground. And he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. Tells us exactly what this is. A person who receives the gospel, hears the gospel, he recognizes it rather as the source of real life. But though he has heard the gospel, though he recognized it as the source of life, he also realized that it was going to change his life. And some people are so crowded out. Because they've got so much going on in their life and so many things that's given them pleasure and so much wealth and so much prosperity and they're enjoying their life too much to really to, to submit to the gospel knowing that that's going to change their life. But then there's the good ground. He who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it and who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some thir- sixty, some thirty. Mark 4.20, these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit. The good ground is is the heart, as the ground is in all of these passages. It is the heart of people, the spiritual heart where decisions are made. No, I'm not talking to you this morning about that blood pumping muscle in the middle of your chest. You understand that when the Bible talks about the heart, it does so in the same identical way that we talk about the heart when we say, I love you with all my heart. (laughs) Uh, Now, now don't don't tell me that all that means is that blood pumping muscle in the middle of your chest. See, when the Bible talks about the heart, it does so in reference to the center of the will, where choices and decisions are made. That's why the Bible says, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. The heart is where decisions are made. That's the way the Bible presents it. 
where our decision, our choice is made. Is that place where we hear, we understand, because we, our hearts are fertile, our, our hearts are prepared, our, our hearts have been made ready by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit so that we hear it, we understand it, we receive it, and it brings forth fruit. What is that fruit? The fruit produced in, by the gospel in the hearts and lives of people. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 5. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Paul was able to say to the church at Colossae, you've heard the gospel and it's bringing forth fruit. Uh, it still is. Thank God it still is. Romans 6.22 But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness. Holiness is a fruit in the end. Everlasting life. That's fruit. Galatians 5.22 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit. Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore by Him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. You folks were all doing that just a few minutes ago. We do that every Sunday here. And thank God for Brother Bill and all of our musicians and all of our workers. I'm just so thankful all the time. But the fact is that when we come together as the people of God and are given the opportunity to praise to God, what is that? That is bearing fruit. <laughs> we sing because we're saved. We sing because we're the redeemed. We're singing because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. You say, I can't carry a tin in the bucket. It doesn't matter. The song is in your soul. The fruit of our lips, giving praise and thanks to his name. That's fruit. James chapter 3 and verse 17, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The gospel produces the fruit of righteousness. It's sown in peace. Well, the role of the sower does not identify itself with any personality. Anybody can sow seed. If you've been saved, you can be a sower, and God expects you to. We can't prepare the soil. Only the Holy Spirit of God can do that, and any farmer will tell you, really, that's the hardest part, is the soil preparation. The life that brings forth the, the plant that produces a crop, it's in the seed. The power is in the seed. It's not in the soil. It's not in the sower. The power is in the seed. And that means if we want to produce a great crop, we have to sow a lot of seed. God didn't just give you one seed so that you could go through the rest of your life just waiting to find the right place to put it. Well, I've got a seed here. And I know some of these days I'm going to find the right person, the right place, the right time, and I'll be able to get... No, listen, God's given us a whole bag full. If you run out, 
He's got plenty more. You're not going to run out. Because the seed of the gospel is continually replenishing itself. We go forth to sow. We're sowing the seed. Maybe you got somebody in your life that's lost. Maybe your kids hadn't got saved yet. Maybe you got a spouse. And you know our tendency when we have somebody in our life that we really care about is, man, we just want to pile up all our seed in one place. And I'll use my wife over here because she's my wife and I can do such things. You know, I, I, I could cover her up in seed. But the fact is, there's a whole world out there that needs the seed of the gospel. And yes, we need to seed our children. Yes, we need to make sure that we're doing that at home. What a terrible thing it would be to have be able to stand before the Lord and say, man, you know, look at all these, all the seed. I, man, I sowed seed everywhere, but you never sowed it in your own house, your own kids. Certainly, we need to start there. But we don't need to end there. 